Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for uh, this time where we learn our faith together. And I say that sincerely because, you know, Archbishop Sheen uh, put together a catechism series that I believe is second to none. He put on convert classes uh, all through his priestly life. He uh, whether he was teaching at the Catholic University of America or, of course, being a bishop in New York City, uh, he was always holding catechism classes. And sometimes there would be hundreds in uh, the classroom uh, learning the faith. And, of course, he had a great love for sharing God's love with souls and bringing people to the Catholic faith. Uh, he said so many times that uh, the greatest work he feels that he could do would be to bring the message of Christ to the world and of course he was the head of the pontifical mission society for uh, over 15 years uh, held that post in New York City and of course brought an awareness to the poor and the marginalized all over the world but uh, again his joy was bringing the faith uh, bringing the love of Christ to uh, a world that uh, does not know him and uh, it's hard to believe with all this technology that uh, there's still people who do not know Jesus Christ. And yet uh, Fulton Sheen is saying to us, again, teach, preach, baptize, and bring the love of Christ to the world. And so uh, that's what he does. And again, these catechism lessons that he put together, and there was 50 of them, uh, and we've been trying to just share one lesson each week with you. And uh, today we'll continue on this theme that we began last week where uh, Archbishop Sheen talked about original sin and angels uh, but today he will talk about original sin and mankind uh, but before we get to that catechism lesson we're going to have Archbishop Sheen give a talk on reparation and he gave that on his television show Life is Worth Living because I think it's important that we understand what reparation is and how we, with, uh, I want to say, uh, by practicing the virtue of justice, can make reparation, uh, repair the damage, uh, make up to our Lord, thinking of how we offended him with our many sins. But again, we have opportunities to make reparation. And of course, uh, Archbishop Sheen will teach us about that today. And I think of one of the beautiful devotions that many of you are starting to um, practice, and that is the uh, the chaplet of the Holy Face of Jesus. Just a, a beautiful little short prayer that many of you are praying, 
and I highly recommend a devotion to the Holy Face. Uh, you can Google that and you'll find a number of great resources and uh, I tell you I have been a devotee to the Holy Face for many years and because of good Saint Therese, the little flower, uh, she was that shining example and he even took the religious name Saint Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face uh, because of course her life was a life of service and and making reparation to our Lord and so uh, without further ado may I share with you now Archbishop Sheen's reflection from his Life is Worth Living broadcast from the 1950s on the topic of reparation. Please enjoy. Friends, my little angel has just received an angelgram from heaven. He was told that next Tuesday night he has to report back in heaven. Now, since I cannot go on without my angel, I shall conclude my series next Tuesday night. I will tell you why he has to go back to heaven. You see, it seems as if uh, the record of Stalin's life in some way got up to the St. Peter. <laughs> and St. Peter wants the board wiped clean, and the only one that can do it is my angel, so he has to go. <laughs> Last week, if you recall, we talked on the subject of peace, and peace from a negative point of view. We warned that Russia talks of peace as a tactic. We are interested in peace as an ideal. And there is a grave danger of war as Russia talks peace. Russia is very much like a man rowing a boat. Russia rows one way, and looks another. And in this particular telecast, we're concerned with peace too, but from a positive point of view. And we're going to begin by showing how peace is achieved, first of all in the individual, and then in the nation. And it's going to take some explanation at first, and it may seem as if we're never going to get to the point, and particularly to use Lincoln as an example of how we as a nation may achieve peace. If you are confused in the length of time it takes me to get to Lincoln, uh, perhaps you'll be very much like a lawyer that I heard of. He was arguing at great length before the judge and presenting one precedent after another. He felt that he was getting a little bit deep for the judge. And so he looked to the judge and he said, Your Honor, are you following me? The judge says, I'm following you, all right, but if I knew the way back, I'd leave you now. <laughs> I'm glad you took the Band-Aid off that camera. I, was, I had a hard time fixing it before. We will start with these two propositions. First, Suffering is related to guilt. Now, that means sometimes individual suffering, though not always. But here we're concerned principally with world suffering, world crises. It is related to guilt. Secondly, 
Guilt needs reparation or the writing of the wrong. First of all, suffering is related to guilt, not always necessarily in the individual, uh, but certainly to the world. Our modern world, however, very seldom thinks of the relationship of a world crisis to guilt. Today, the modern world practically denies sin and any form of responsibility. It would be very much, for example, like a man who disobeyed one of God's laws, namely that he should eat. After four or five days, he has a headache. He's told that he has a headache simply because he has disobeyed a law of God in the physical order. He would deny that and say, oh, no, no, there's no relationship between my headache and my not eating or the disobedience of law. In our modern world, fails to see any connection or correlation between what is happening to us in the world order and the way we live and think and move and have our being. This denial of responsibility reminds me of, of a husband and wife who went to the doctor. And the doctor said to the husband, uh, what's wrong with you, sir? He said, too many cherries. I eat too many cherries. The wife said, at the bottom of cocktail glasses. Ask the modern world what's wrong, and the modern world blames it on the cherries. Forgets that maybe it's the way we have conducted ourselves before our fellow man and before God. Then there are individuals, too, who are extremely egotistic and selfish. As a result, nobody cares for them. They blame it onto others, and they say, well, they are very antisocial. They forget that their egotism has forced other people to alienate themselves from them. And they may say, well, the only reason people do not like me is because I have halitosis. They refuse to face the fact that their own guilt, their own egotism, their own selfishness is the cause of the peculiar attitude of other people toward them. That's point number one. World crisis is related to guilt. Secondly, guilt needs reparation. There is a great difference between sorrow and reparation or making up for sorrow. For example, suppose that during one of these telecasts, when my little angel came out to clean my blackboard, my green board, when my little angel came out that I stole his halo. Now, I am sure that just as soon as my little angel took his wings back into the wings, <laughs> and I said to him, I'm awfully sorry, angel, will you forgive me? The angel would say, Sure, I forgive you, but give me back my halo, wouldn't he? <laughs> the 
long time to get there, but the reaction was good. I'll say that for you. <laughs> Suppose every time we did wrong, we were told to drive a nail in a board. And then every time we were forgiven, we were told to pull the nail out. There would still be holes, wouldn't there? That's the record of how we disturb the order of justice. People think that all they have to do when they do wrong, individually, socially, before God and man, is just merely to be forgiven. No, they have to make up for it. The equilibrium and the balance of justice has been disturbed, and the balance must be restored. To give another example, suppose you had the moral authority to command me and bind me in conscience. And you told me to take three steps to my right. Presently, I'm in neutral ground, just like the neutral in the old gearships. You tell me to take three steps to the right. That would be this way. I take three to the left. And I get over here, I say to you, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You would forgive me. Well, look where I am. Before I can begin doing good, I have to get back a neutral again. And if I put my foot three times down in self-affirmation or in an unlawful pleasure, I have to put my foot down three times in reparation, getting back again with my little tail behind my legs. Then, I am in neutral and can begin to do good. So it is with the world. And so it is with the nation. The nation may do wrong. It has to make up for it. And it can only make up for it by some kind of penance and atonement and reparation. We done wrong as a nation? We certainly are not all white, innocent lambs. And here we're concerned about the real way to achieve peace. And we are suggesting that the way to peace is the recognition that the world crisis as it is is due in part to the way we have lived. And that we must in some way make expiation for this. China, Poland, all the countries behind the Iron Curtain. We are responsible to some extent for the slavery forced upon these lands. It is not enough for us merely to point our accusing finger at communism and make communism a scapegoat. With a true sense of justice, we as American people will affirm before God that the world crisis is partly of our own making. The world is the way it is because you are the way you are, because I am the way I am. 
it is not just enough for us as individuals to make up for our own individual failings, since we are citizens of a great commonwealth. We have to make the expiation as a commonwealth. And in order that you may understand that this is a true American doctrine, as well as a profound religious doctrine in the great Hebraic Christian tradition, let me tell you how it was all expressed by Lincoln. He expressed it best in the second inaugural. First of all, the setting for it. When Lincoln was elected president for the first time, and began to serve his term, there were many who said he could not be re-elected. Toward the end of his first term, there was a meeting held here in New York. At the meeting, among others, Stephen T. Field, whom Lincoln had appointed to the Supreme Court, Roscoe Conklin, Speaker of the House, Whitelaw Reed, and Horace Greeley. All of them said, we must do everything we possibly can to prevent the renomination of Lincoln. He cannot be re-elected, and he must not be re-elected. Then it was that his friend Orville Browning, the friend of Lincoln, was he a friend, wrote, I thought that Lincoln would pass through his term Many a young man goes through college without danger and without acquiring any knowledge. But he is a total failure. And all the while, the Civil War was raging. And then they began to accuse Lincoln, and they said that he took his salary in gold paid the soldiers in greenbacks that might soon be worthless. That was a lie. Lincoln was taking a salary and, and salary warrants, payable in greenbacks, in which he did not cash generally for several months after he received them. When the news came to Lincoln, Lincoln pulled open the door of his desk took out a few stocks that he had, bank books, deeds, to a little real estate. And all that amounted to little. And carrying it in his big, long arms, Lincoln walked from the White House over to the Treasury, came to the desk of Mr. Chase, the Secretary of the Treasury, he said, here are all my earthly possessions. Put them all in government bonds. For the sake of the country. All the while, the enemies barked at Lincoln. Lincoln opened his desk drawer one night. and took a sheet of paper and wrote. I promise that between... The election 
and the inauguration. I will serve the new president-elect to the best ability. But I know how for the sake of the Union. Then he signed it, Abraham Lincoln, and put it back again in his desk. Lincoln ran again for a second term. One of his friends, Fox, came to him and said that one of his political enemies in Maryland was being defeated and... Lincoln said, I just can't share your resentment. Somehow or other, I do not have enough hate in me. I feel that life is too short to bear any resentment to any man. As soon as a man fails to attack me, I forget all of the evil that he has done. And at 2.30 on election night, the telegraphic reports came into the White House. Lincoln was up. It was 2.30 in the morning. The band was playing outside. Lincoln began to reminisce the friends who were there seeing the reports of his second election. Lincoln said, I remember the night of the first election. I was on a couch. I looked in the mirror at the other side of the room, and I saw in the mirror two faces. My own image, first of all, was very clear, and behind it was another image that was very shadowy. I did not know what it meant. I got up, walked around the room, and came back and looked in again. And there in that mirror... It was first of all a clear image and then the ghostly one. I asked Mary what it meant, and Mary said it means you will serve two terms. First one, you will live through. For the second one is finished, you will die. The next day, Lincoln said to his wife, we have had many sorrows. And then came that cold, windy day when he gave his second inaugural And here is American tradition. The second inaugural of Lincoln telling the American people that there's some kind of reparation and expiation needed for its crimes and its sins. He said it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God. To confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow yet with the assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and forgiveness. And to recognize the sublime truth announced in sacred scripture and proven by all history that only those nations are blessed. And inasmuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates our land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful reparation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers and in wealth and in power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten God. God preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our lives and our hearts that all these blessings were produced 
by some superior power and wisdom of our own. It behooves us, then, to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Lincoln, in other words, saw that the awful calamity of civil war was a punishment which God permitted us to have because of our national sins. Would it not be well to let reign through America today a voice like Lincoln's in which we humbly fall prostrate before God and recognize that we too have sinned and to ask God for pardon and forgiveness? This is the way to peace. We need not go to war in order to beat down our fellow man and turn poppy fields into very pestilence of blood. There is another way to peace. And we have a president who did not think of God as an afterthought in, our, in his presidential address. But he began invoking the blessing of God. And would it not be well for all of us to ask our president, write to him, telegraph him, to ask our president to declare a national day of reparation and penance. We can all do it. The Jews have their feasts, their fasts, and they keep them rigorously. The Christians have their own. And the communists are not the only ones that are guilty before God. We too, as a nation, are guilty. We have failed at least to some extent. Therefore, as Lincoln said, let us prostrate ourselves before the offended majesty of God and ask his pardon. Then when we invoke the blessing of God and beg his forgiveness upon us, for all of our national sins, and we may be sure that his strength will be with us. Fellow American citizens, think this over. This is the serious, godlike way to peace. Not the way in which we hate our fellow man, but in which we hate the wrong that is in us, and we will purge all of that wrong out of our hearts. Communicate with your president, and then when he's proclaimed this national day of reparation, then that Jews and Catholics and Protestants from their pulpits, as men and women of God, all of us, make America free, make America at peace. You are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together. And Archbishop Sheen spoke well about the need for reparation. Now, he was talking at a time, of course, where when communism was uh, rearing its ugly head throughout the world and uh, many of the evils, I like to say the other isms, uh, atheism, Marxism, um, <laughs> there are so many of them, I can't name them all, it seems. But still, he was asking us to uh, be on guard, and of course to be part of God's army, uh, to take up arms, uh, take up our rosaries, our opportunities to pray, uh, but to make a difference. And uh, I know he speaks a great deal of America, and for our uh, listeners, of course, in the United Kingdom and the Philippines and Australia and Canada, I still think this um, lesson is valuable for our own countries. And uh, yet, it's that fight for freedom. And so, again, let us do our part, and let us make some reparation. 
my dear friends, I mentioned earlier about the devotion to the holy face of Jesus, and may I invite you to uh, take up that beautiful devotion of praying the chaplet to the holy face. It is now time for our catechism lesson, and Archbishop Sheen will now teach us about original sin and mankind. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. In the previous lesson, we said that there is running through God's universe the law that no one shall be crowned unless he has struggled. Certain privileges and gifts and blessings are given to all of us on condition that we fulfill love and the right use of freedom. Anyone who gives freedom to another takes a risk. Whenever a parent gives freedom to a son or daughter, he takes a risk. For freedom can turn out either for weal or for woe. When God made the angels free, he took, as it were, a risk. Actually, some of them used their freedom in order to declare themselves as God. They denied their independence and thus they forfeited the right to perpetuate themselves in glory and in happiness. We went on to say that there's evil in the world and we asked at the conclusion of the last lesson if this evil would in some way get to man. God now takes another risks. He makes man. He makes him free. And he made man free, as we said in another lesson, because God wanted to make a moral universe. And it is impossible to make a moral universe without making a free universe. We can be virtuous only in a universe in which it is possible to be vicious. In a certain sense, we are less free of free than freeable. I should have put that the other way around. In a certain sense, we are less free than freeable. Is that the way I put it? We make ourselves free. In other words, by the right use of freedom, we do perfect our personality. If we abuse our freedom, we become less and less free. Anyone, for example, who is addicted to vices becomes the slave of vices. Anyone who becomes a communist becomes more and more subject to dictatorship. It is therefore by the right use of freedom that we finally come to that very glorious freedom of being children of God. The whole purpose of education is to train everyone to use freedom rightly. Hence parents offer encouragement to their children to choose good rather than evil. And that is what God did at the beginning. God gave to man certain blessings and privileges which would be his on condition that he used his freedom in the way that would perfect his personality. God would not force his blessings down anyone's throat. Regardless of how much you like ice cream, you certainly would not want to have it jammed down your throat. You were never happy doing things you do not want to do. 
All freedom, therefore, implies a choice, and choice implies alternatives. And so God gave man a choice. Our first parents were put into the Garden of Paradise. An Eden of pleasure and of joy. Now forget the story of the apple and do not think of the fall of man and the trial in the Garden of Paradise merely in terms of an apple. As a matter of fact, Scripture does not mention an apple at all. The word apple came into it simply because there happened to be so much correspondence in Latin between the word for evil and the word for apple. And then everyone began saying that Adam ate the apple. What is mentioned is a fruit. God gave our first parents certain gifts. Now that is important. Gifts. They were not given permanently. Man was to decide whether he wanted those gifts for himself and for all posterity. These gifts were principally twofold. One was called supernatural. That word will be explained technically later on. But this was the most important gift of all. It actually was a very intimate communion with God. It was something like that which we are later on are going to call grace. But this was inner happiness beyond all description. Then there were certain other gifts which technically are called preternatural. They were outside of the order of nature. And one of the gifts affected the mind. The human mind was to be free from error. He would not make mistakes in reason. Then another gift was the body would never rebel against the soul. There would never be carnal temptations. Concupiscence, vices, and sex would never completely be cloud, for example, our reason. Then another gift was immortality of body. The body would never die. The soul is naturally immortal. Now, all of these gifts, God said our first parents would possess, and the gifts would pass on to all mankind if the representative of mankind, namely Adam, chose freely those gifts. So he was put to a test. The test was love, that was all. He would have to prove that he loved. Now, how do you prove you love anyone? Saying so? Certainly not. There are many who say they love God, but they do not love him. The only way we really prove love is by a choice. Every act of love is not only an affirmation. Every act of love, in a certain sense, is a negation. In courtship, 
A young woman might say to a young man who was asking for her hand and her heart, How do I know you love me? In this city, there are 268,412 other eligible young women. Have you seen them all? Do you know that you love me better than anyone else? The young man, if he was rather skilled in philosophy, might say, yes, in a certain sense, I do. But the mere fact that I choose you, I negate all of them. In the garden, there was a choice. And the choice was expressed in terms of trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there were other trees in the garden, all of which gave great pleasure. But these were the important ones because they involved decision, alternatives. God wanted man to eat of the tree of life, namely, to keep in constant union with his divine life, never to cut that canal between the two. The other tree, which God did not want man to eat, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was a kind of a human approach, inasmuch as it assumed that happiness consists in knowing evil just as well as good, knowing a cancer as well as health, knowing blindness as well as vision. The choice that was given to our first parents was therefore a choice between the tree of divine life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The alternative was a choice between a fruit and a garden, a part and a whole, something that is really involved in every temptation in the world. Now, was there anything unreasonable about this trial? Is not life filled with abundant instances of receiving rewards on condition of love? Imagine a wealthy man going away for the summer, and telling the chauffeur and his wife that they may live in his house, they can eat his food, they can drink his wine, they can use his cars, ride his horses, but only on one condition. The rich man says to them they must not eat the artificial fruit that is on the dining room table. The owner knows very well that artificial fruit is very bad for digestion. So he does not tell the chauffeur and the wife. They ought to know that anyway, and furthermore, they ought to trust him in the light of all that he was doing for them. If the wife persuades the husband that he ought to eat that apple, that artificial apple, she would not be a lady. And if he ate that artificial fruit, he would not be a gentleman. By doing the one thing forbidden, they would lose all the good things provided and have indigestion besides. And they would also lose the opportunity to pass on the blessings of this rich man to their children. To make light of the fruit in the story of the fall is to miss the point that it was a test of love, not to shake hands with a passerby on a street as of no importance not to shake hands with a friend is sometimes a sign of contempt and can be very serious. 
eating of the forbidden fruit was a sign of contempt. It was the symbol of rebellion. God was imposing a single limit to the sovereignty of man, reminding him that if he did the one thing forbidden, he would imperil all of the good things provided. Like Pandora, he opened the forbidden box and he lost all of the treasures. Who was it then that tempted our first parents? It was the fallen angel. It was Satan. And when he tempted our first parents, he began with a why. He said, why has God commanded you that you should not eat of every tree of paradise? There are actually three steps in that diabolical temptation. And really for a sound psychological study of the nature of temptation, there is nothing that surpasses the story in the book of Genesis. The three steps of Satan were the following. First, he aroused a doubt. He said, why did God command you? In other words, he, he was saying that God's holding back something. He's unkind. His restrictions are unjust. Be more free. Can't you see this commandment is a restriction of liberty, of your constitutional rights? Defy your conscience. Why should you be under shackles? He began to unsettle the mind, to disturb it, to make Eve see that the fruit was very pleasant to look at. Is there anything unusual about that approach of evil? Look back on any temptation that you've ever had. Has it not begun with a why? Has it not begun with a doubt? Young man or woman, for example, goes to a certain type of college and the professor begins to sow doubts in the minds of the young. That's the beginning of the loss of faith very often. Does not an evil voice seem to be saying to us, why don't you use your sex instincts? Didn't God give them to you? Why not make all the money you can? Isn't that why you're here in this world? Why does the church tell you that you should not marry again for the second, third, or fourth time while the first spouse is living? Why, why, why? Be free. Throw off the shackles. That's what's happening every day in the world. And that's what happened at the beginning. The second step of Satan was to remove all fear of the consequences of sin. He ridiculed punishment. 
he said. You will not die. God said that if they ate of the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Satan always contradicts God. He minimizes sin. He said, oh, it's nothing. Don't believe God when he tells you these things. Do you still believe what he said, that what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder? That's ridiculous. Go ahead and steal it. You won't be caught. Go ahead and do it. No one will know. Take that tenth cocktail. You will never be an alcoholic. It'll just make you feel good. It's pleasant. Go on committing excesses of the flesh. You will never be a slave. You believe in hell? Don't be silly. Hell is a punishment for sin. That's the way the devil talks. You heard him talk that way? Everybody has. Something very interesting about the devil, as explained in the scriptures, is that at the beginning the devil will always say, minimize guilt. And then after we sin, he becomes in the language of scripture an accuser. That is the way he's described in the book of the Apocalypse. He tells us, oh, it's nothing at the beginning. And then afterwards he says, it's everything. Now you have no hope. Now despair. Take to drink. And the third stage of the temptation of Satan was a false promise. He said to our first parents, you will be likened to God. Knowing good and evil. This was a very tricky suggestion. This is really what Satan was saying. God knows the difference between good and evil. Now the reason he does not want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because you too will know the difference. And once you know the difference between good and evil, you will be like God. You see? That's the reason he's forbidden. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's jealous. Now, what was the fallacy in that temptation of Satan? The fallacy was this, that God does not know good and evil the way we do. God knows good and evil and the difference between the two in a very abstract fashion. In the same way, for example, that you know typhoid fever. You do not have it, but you know it by a negation of health. But when you and I know evil, we do not know it in an abstract fashion. It gets into our blood becomes a part of us. The act becomes a habit. We are impelled to commit it again and again until finally we are trapped. 
Satan did not make that distinction. So he goes on through the world today saying, Oh, you have to live. You've never lived. You've never been drunk. Innocent, aren't you? You have to know the difference between good and evil. And our first parents fell for that kind of suggestion, and the result was their eyes were opened. They hid from God. And sin one always hides from God. Their eyes were opened. They saw themselves naked. Why do they perceive themselves to be naked now and not naked before? Because the inner glory of grace which they had in their souls suffused their body, as it were, with a kind of light, and they were filled with a radiance all round about them, perhaps something like our blessed Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now that they lost that inner likeness to God, well, then they perceived themselves to be naked. The earth then rebelled. Thistles grew, the beast became wild. Man then had to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. Nature became difficult to control. Woman was told that she would bring forth her children in sorrow. Notice that the punishment of man was in relationship to nature and the punishment of Eve was in relationship to life. All the gifts were lost. only gifts were lost. Is there anything unnatural about the story of the fall of man? How often we have insisted on our own freedom in a way that hurt us. We interpreted freedom as the right to rebel. So we became like steam engines which refused to follow the track laid down by some master engineer. We said, I'm going to be free, and we got off the track. We became like golfers who refused to keep heads down when they swung. And then we blamed the clubs or the caddy master when we dubbed the shot. Like copies, we pretended to be originals. Like adjectives, we wanted to be nouns. Like rays, we wanted to be the sun. Like printed pages, we insisted we were the authors. All of these things we did, and we did because we inherited that abuse of freedom from the first parents. Like campaign orators, we talked so much about freedom, we lost our voices, and then we no longer had freedom of speech. Our parents told us not to play with matches. We disobeyed, and we burned ourselves. And when mother called, we hid. We had no fear of the mother before we burned our fingers. Adam and Eve had no fear of God before they disobeyed. Then after sin, God appeared to be an angry God. He was not angry. A boy, for example, puts his fingers into a cookie jar and steals some cookies, which he's forbidden to do, and as soon as he sees his mother, he says, Now, Mommy, don't get mad. There's no anger in the mother. The anger is only in the boy's projection to his mother of a sense of justice. And anger is not in God. Anger is in our own disordered selves. 
And it happens, therefore, that we, the poor descendants of Adam, have taken upon ourselves something of that disorder. All we have to know, really, to prove original sin is to look into ourselves. We know very well that we are not the way God made us. God certainly would never have made us the way we are with our darkened intellect and our weak will. Something happened to us. And whatever it is that happened to us, it was all the earmarks of an abuse of freedom. We rebelled. In Adam was the head of And the effects of that sin have passed on to all of us, to everyone in the world except one. That was a woman. That is what we mean by saying that Mary was immaculately conceived. She was preserved free from the traces of original sin in virtue of the anticipated merits of our Lord's death on the cross. Immediately after the fall, God promised that he would redeem man. He said that the seed of a woman would conquer the seed of Satan. The seed of the woman would be Christ. And by speaking of seeds, he was speaking of corporations, peoples, and groups. Thus in the divine plan, the very elements that were used for our destruction are used for our redemption. In the fall, there was a disobedient man, Adam, a proud woman, Eve, and a tree. God would take the very elements of defeat, use those as the elements of victory. For the disobedient Adam there is the obedient new Adam, Christ. For the proud woman, Eve, there is the humble new Eve, Mary. And for the tree, there is the cross. That will be our hope. God love you. You are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice for your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you once again for joining me for uh, this weekly opportunity to grow in our faith, to understand that our lives are worth living, and that God has a plan for each and every one of us. My dear friends, may I invite you to visit our website, simply titled bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find uh, over a hundred uh, videos of Archbishop Sheen from his years on television and his many lectures. Uh, we have a, a great archive of the radio shows that we've uh, produced and uh, distributed all over the world for the last 10 years. And of course, there is a great selection of books. And uh, Archbishop Sheen wrote 66 books. And so uh, many of them are still in print today. And uh, everyone needs a book or two of Archbishop Sheen in their own personal library. And so may I encourage you uh, to uh, build up that treasury 
uh, of great reading in your own home. And so again, the website is bishopsheentoday.com. My dear friends, I pray that you will have a blessed week, and until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, and may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.